Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. We are back yet again, this time for episode 17 of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I am Dr. Sharin Tofai from Los Angeles, California. And I'm Dr. Kevin L. Hayek from Cleveland, Ohio, sporting my new favorite shirt. You see I this? I see uh... that, Kevin. Yeah. Our listeners can't see, but he's got this beautiful shirt that says Got Hernia on it. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, happy to support my fellow hernia surgeons, especially those on the, the West Coast. So thanks for this uh, lovely addition to my wardrobe. Oh, I love that you're representing. Thank you so much. Anytime. You know, I love my hernias. <laughs> I know. I know. We can't get through any podcast without hearing about hernias. So. <laughs> or Cleveland. Actually, That's maybe true. not this time. We'll see. Not this time. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me introduce our guest for today. Many of you already know him very well, Dr. Nat Soper. Dr. Soper, Soper received his medical degree from the University of Iowa and went on to do general surgery residency at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He then completed a, a National Institutes of Health or NIH postdoctoral research fellowship in the Digestive Diseases Center at Mayo Clinic. After that, he spent several years on the faculty of Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis before moving to be uh, to uh, Northwestern University in Chicago in 2003. He was chairman of the Department of Surgery at, at Northwestern from 2007 to 2019 before migrating westward in 2020, where he has been serving as chair of the Department of Surgery for the University of Arizona. We have a lot of good friends at all of these institutions. There's obviously a lot more to his story than that, but that's why we're here. We can't wait to dive into your story, Nat, and thank you for coming. Well, <clears throat> thanks for having me. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you've gotten a chance in your Probably not, given your busy schedule, but uh, if you've listened to any of our previous episodes, you'll know that the the main purpose is to really get to know some of our sages past, present, and future leaders. Certainly, you've been on our list for a while, and we are excited to have you. Uh, so to start, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your early years? Where did you grow up, and what were some memorable memorable events along your journey to becoming a surgeon? Well, first of all, I have to say I'm kind of bummed for, for being number 17, for goodness sake. But oh, oh, my God. Oh, we shouldn't have said that yet. <laughs> I'll, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> now, I, will, it, I, will it help if you know that the others were a little bit older than you? Oh, oh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. If you hit 100 years old, you yeah. can't be down to number 17. You have Got to it. No, I, under, I understand that very well. No, um, yeah, I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa. Um my dad was a pediatric surgeon, actually one of the first fellowship trained pediatric surgeons in the United States. In fact, we went to Liverpool to train in 1960, and I, I never saw the Beatles, but uh, I liked them later in life. Um, so um, in Iowa City, initially, we actually lived out in the country. We owned a horse, um, 
Yeah, we did all kinds of stuff outside. I was really angry at my dad for not letting me get a 22 rifle until I was eight years old oh, uh, <laughs> because my two older brothers already had them. Oh. Um, and then we moved into town um, later on, and we lived within a few blocks of the University of Iowa football stadium and the, and the right. hospital and things. And that's where I um, went through high school. Um, I had a little bit of a travel lust. Um, I was an exchange student in Australia. Um, and one day my dad said, well, where do you think you want to go to school? And, and I said, I want to go to Stanford University. And he said, mm. well, we can't afford that. So you better set your sights down a little bit and maybe go to some state school. Um, and at that point, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, this is in the early 70s. So you didn't want to follow in the footsteps of folks. And uh, I caught wind um, from a friend of my dad's that there was a place called the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Yeah. It happened to be during the Vietnam uh, draft and mm. it's in Canada and on an island near the mountains. And I'm coming from Iowa. And I thought, wow, that sounded really cool. Um, and it sounded even cooler when they wrote me back, accepted me, and said that the tuition was $424 a year. Um, wow. After the first year, I did well enough. I got a, quote, full-ride scholarship. Of course And my did. parents spent $424 under my undergraduate tuition. Wow. Um, I think they spent I that on my, uh, on my lunch. Uh, and <laughs> That's right. One of my lunches uh, cost that. Yeah, so. I, I went there thinking I wanted to be an oceanographer like Jacques Cousteau. That's but cool. after a couple of semesters of algae and plankton and really loving biology, I realized, oh, my goodness, either I had to be a high school biology teacher or I've got to think of plan B. So I took the MCATs, um, <clears throat> did well, was accepted to the University of Iowa Medical School, where I swear I would never be a surgeon. Um, oh, Yeah. And uh, but it was one of those typical stories where I, I kind of liked everything, but um, surgery chose me on my first day of clerkship. It became apparent that that fit my personality and, and things. And so I decided to become a surgeon after all. So you did surgery first? No, no, no. This was halfway through the, the third year. I've been on medicine. Wow. I kind of like yeah. that. I've been on psychiatry. I hated that. Um, you know, there were a bunch of things that were okay, but surgery reached out and grabbed me. Um, and as it turns out on that first day, I was assigned to a Whipple operation that took 12 hours. So if, if I could get caught by surgery with that experience, then just shows how sick I am. <laughs> now that's my favorite operation. So I have to, <laughs> I have to say that, uh, you know, not the twelve-hour ones. Though. Well, no, the twelve. Yeah, that. No, you're right. Yeah, the twelve-hour <laughs> ones. Not definitely not my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, we also had this Whipple discussion uh, last week um, with Kevin, which was, yeah, the Whipple. I think it's just such a special operation, even for uh -huh. a hernia surgeon. <laughs> if I had to choose one operation, which is like the coolest of all, I think it's the Whipple. Well, it certainly is one of the most complex. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, it's too bad you don't cure many people by doing that, but yeah, that would be yeah. the alternative, I guess. Um, yeah, so I went to the University of Utah. I mean, as it turns out, John Hunter was a year behind me and uh, wow. so we were, we were good buds during that period of time. And remember, this is pre video laparoscopy. Um, mm -hmm. And um, 
So, uh, and there was one crazy private practice surgeon who did diagnostic laparoscopy, and we all thought he was nuts. Um, you know, he'd make a little incision on the belly and then, you know, put his eye to the eyepiece of the laparoscope, dragging his face across the patient's belly. <laughs> right. um, and every mm -hmm. once in a while, he'd let us put an eye to the eyepiece to show us what he was seeing. And and again, we thought he was nuts and that, that there wasn't much to that uh, technology at that point in time. Um, so, uh, and the, a new operation had just been described, and that was the ileal pouch um, uh, anal pull-through procedure. Uh, and one of the young faculty at, uh, uh, in Salt Lake had just come back from doing a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic to learn how to do that. And I thought it was really cool. And he said, well, look, when you graduate, do that same fellowship and I'll recruit you back to, to uh, Utah. And I thought, okay, that sounds good. Hmm. Go, and it was a research fellowship. Uh, operated on nothing but dogs and pigs for a couple of years. Um, and midway through my time there, um, doing basic science research on intestinal motility and the ileal break and gastric pacing and stuff like that, um, the guy who was going to recruit me back went to Wash U. <laughs> and mm. so I got recruited to Wash U to do maximally invasive surgery and basic science research. Mm. That's that's what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, now, as it so happens, the, uh, this same this same guy, Dr. Jim Becker, had a side project that was being uh, funded by a chemical company. Um, this was right when biliary lithotripsy was thought to be the next you know, next coming. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, kidney lithotripsy had been shown to work. And so people thought, why not bust up the gallstones and not take out the gallbladder? Um, and so we were trying in dogs ways of putting, uh, percutaneously clipping the cystic duct, then putting some chemical in the gallbladder that would ablate the mucosa so the gallstones wouldn't come back. That's what we were working on. And Barnes Hospital purchased two lithotrippers. One um, controlled by GI medicine and GI surgery and the other by radiology. And um, when, when it failed, as it inevitably did, then we would try to do these mini cholecystectomies with tiny incisions. And they were horrible. Uh, and mm. you couldn't teach because only one person could see at mm. a time. I always wonder but, about that. Yeah. You can only fit one hand in no there. No one ever said how horrible it was. They always talk about it. And then no one ever said it was actually not good. Oh, it was not good at all. Uh, thankfully, we didn't hurt anybody. But um, and I was I was actually giving a lecture in Jefferson City, Missouri, in December of uh, 1988. Um, I've been on faculty for exactly five and a half months. And a nurse came up to me after the, my lecture on lithotripsy and said, have you seen this publication? And it was laser monthly news. Um, now, I, I didn't get it then. I still don't get that journal. Uh, but it was actually, I think, the first publication, Eddie Joe Record, Eddie Joe Reddick, two yeah. patients treated by the laparoscopic laser cholecystectomy with, you know, out of the hospital the next day, almost no pain. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this makes sense. Not none of this lithotripsy and mini cholecystectomy stuff. Um, so I went back uh, to, to, to St. Louis. Um, I talked to some folks. There was actually a crazy urologist there who, who had um, an in with Carl Stort's company. And he had been trying to get general surgeons to think about doing laparoscopy uh, for about a year. Uh, so I talked to him and he was able to get some old beaten up OBGYN equipment from Carl Stortz 
Um, <laughs> I went to my chair and said, can we divert money from this one research project on the dogs and ablating the mucosa? And he said, no. Um, but we went ahead and did it anyway. And I went back to the chair with uh, five little piggy gallbladders and formalin. And I said, and this guy was Sam Wells, um, who was you know, kind of bigger than life. Um, didn't call him by his first name till I was a full professor and uh, <laughs> said, Dr. Wells, this really is the thing. We got to do this. And so he gave his blessing. Um, we did a number more pigs. I then worked with a gynecologist to learn how to actually put ports in a human, all metal ports, of course. Um, and then um, called down to Eddie Joe Reddick's place at the West Side Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and my secretary talked to his and said, could I come down and watch? And he said, sure, come on down. Mm. Um, so I went there in early August of 1989. Um, there were about eight surgeons watching him and Doug Olson. Uh, they did three laparoscopic laser cholecystectomies that day. Um, one of the other- Why did they call it laser cholecystectomy? What was the yeah. impetus for that? They did it with laser beams. So <laughs> it, they thought uh, that it was unsafe to use electrocautery in a closed abdomen because something oh. might explode. Okay. So to use the laser to to uh, to do cautery, to catch the gallbladder from the liver bed. Ah. That's so they were wearing glass, like laser protection glasses and everything. No, 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 they no. weren't because no. it was all okay. all inside. Inside, okay. Right, and you could, and it was on a video screen. I mean, it was very well done. Um, one laser of the other was a thing back then, Kevin. You weren't born so, yet, but laser yeah, was a thing. <laughs> okay, were, so I even a had laser... a laser certificate. That's how. That's how far okay, back. Okay, so it's laser cold. So they were worried about cautery then. In the, they were worried in... about cautery, yeah. Okay. And okay. Um, one of the other participants that day was Joe Peatland. Now that may be a name. Yeah, no, we, yeah, definitely. And yeah. Names uh, he and I both looked great. at one another and said, oh my goodness, we got to do this. Um, but then he told me that we were being charged $1,500 to watch him that day. And nobody had told me that. And I had no money. So I kind of skulked around and hoped nobody would see me the rest of the day. But sure enough, I got an invoice the next week from Eddie Joe for $1,500 for my fellowship in laparoscopy. Right. Right. Wow. I went to my chair and said, what do we do with this? And he said, well, we never charge people to come watch us. Why don't you write him a letter and see what he says? And I did. And I got a nice letter back that I have on a slide somewhere from Eddie Joe saying, uh -huh. I'd rather have your goodwill than your money. So uh, oh, you can make it up nice. to me, uh, buy me lunch in St. Louis. Okay. Well, that's All nice right. because we've heard this multiple different surgeons yeah, share the story about these yeah. $1,500 courses and being able oh. to watch them. Well, this wasn't even a course. It was just watching. Yeah, it was observing. Yeah, just watching. You were yeah. observing. for And uh, right. So um, so then, you know, in my mind, Katie barred the door and we actually got the, the chair's support to go to the OR technology company and they agreed to buy a tower and the rudimentary lap laparoscopic equipment that was available then. Uh, and it was through Carl Stortz. And they said, well, yeah, well, you can have one, but there are none in, in, in we, we, they come off the production line about once every week. Um, and your set is going to be shown at the ACS meeting in Atlanta in October, and you can have it after that meeting. Okay. So the, that meeting in 1989 was where there were two booths that had videos of Eddie Joe Reddick doing a laparoscopic laser cholecystectomy at the laser booth and at the Carl Stortz booth. 
And there mm. were surgeons lined up a hundred deep watching wow. those and three quarters of them shook their heads as they walked away and said, this is nuts. And about one quarter were ordering the equipment as fast as they could. So, cool. um, so uh, that's kind of how we got started. Oh, and in terms of the laser, we didn't have a laser when we were doing this, these operations in, in pigs. And so we just shrink wrapped a long cautery thing up to five millimeters and used it. And nothing blew up. And we actually reported that a couple of years later that it was safe. But, um, so you, yeah, you went straight to cautery. We went straight to cautery. Wow. And to give you an idea of how fast things were moving, that same urologist and, and, and I, six months later, did the first laparoscopic nephrectomy in the world. Oh, wow. I think, I think I saw that on your CV. Yeah. Do you, do you publish that? Correct. Didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But I was like, well, that was like 19, later? that was like 1991 or something. 1990. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I saw it. I was like, what? That, that is insane. Yeah. No, it was, it was crazy times. Your, and, and your time during, uh, at WashU, um, were you the main person moving laparoscopy in that hospital or oh, did yeah. you have I, I was the only one for yeah. a number of months. And it, and it was so obvious to me that this is the way that gallbladder should be taken out that, um, I, but I had to teach the other faculty members first, then the chief residents, then the fourth years, then the third years, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it, it, it took a number of months, but one of those people I taught was Mike Brunt, because uh, oh he was faculty with me. And yeah. that's what really got him interested in laparoscopy. Well, I don't know if I've shared you my story about how I got involved an interest in laparoscopy, but you're a very strong part of it. I don't know if you remember uh -oh. or know. Uh oh. So, <laughs> what did I do this time? Again, Kevin, you probably were not born, but in the late 1990s, when I was started residency at UCLA, um, I think around, I'm going to say maybe 1998, around then or 99, you were invited to UCLA as a, a grand round speaker. Uh -huh. And I tradition was. That. Tradition was that the grand round speaker um, would then spend like a lunchtime or like an after grand rounds time with the the lab residents, uh -huh. mostly for mentorship and guidance. And uh, it was really cool to be able to have like a one on one, like a very close, intimate thing. There's only like maybe ten of us, six, seven, or eight of, of us with someone like you. So at that time, I was in the lab, and you were the the invited speaker. Uh -huh. And so I loved, my whole thing was about surgical education. And I think your talk had something to do with teaching residents how to do laparoscopic surgery and skills labs and yeah. laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And you had, you had like videos you would show them. You had like this whole protocol, which at the time we didn't have such a kind of regimented way to do it. And um, so I met you there. I met you for lunch and you were, I think, uh, um, I remember very specifically the room we were in, where you were sitting, where I was sitting, where all the other my colleagues were sitting. And I was just blown away. I'm like, who is this person? And how can um, I be just like him? You were the reason, <laughs> no joke. You were the reason I chose to go into minimally invasive surgery. Wow. That's because cool. mostly because you were not only really like passionate about it, but the whole surgical education part of it was so critical as opposed to other surgeons that 
did laparoscopic surgery, but the education piece was not their passion. And um, that's, that's an amazing story. Every time that, I see you, I remember 1998 wow. or 99, whatever that was. Well, I'm, I, that, that, that makes me feel really good, um, you know, because I am passionate about what I've done and what I continue to do. And in my mind, that's the antidote to burnout. If you find what you're mm. passionate about and can actually do it on a daily basis, you know, that, that then you win. Yeah. And I beat that story, Kevin. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just floored by it. It's, it's, yeah. and, and actually that's been one of the really cool things about bringing on some of Sage's leaders and, and getting the chance to dig deep is kind of understand, you know, what makes them tick and how, how they got to where they were, because obviously as we meet them and we meet people like yourself, it's, you know, we see the kind of the polished end product, but we know there's a lot of grit that, that went into it and, you know, flying to Nashville and getting an invoice for $1,500. I mean, that that's just, you know, it's not, not, not something we didn't read that on your CV, you know, and so, so yeah. you got to dig a little bit deeper and, yeah, uh, well, you know, well, and speaking of Eddie Joe, so he then, uh, started up a, a, a training center for laparoscopic colostectomy down in Nashville. And he would rent pigs from a nearby pig farm. And he got me to come down. I, I, get, I helped him teach a couple of courses. Um, and that's about when Sage's courses just started taking off. So I was really involved in those primarily. But uh, so, and then Eddie Joe learned that if you take out the, the gallbladder of a piglet, they grow to market weight faster. So he bought the farm next what? door and would lease the pigs across and then get them back and, and sell them. And there were two occasions when I was teaching courses and they took the wrong pig to the lab and we'd get in there a couple of clips in the right upper quadrant. And the surgeons were wondering, how, where's the gallbladder? Wow. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's pretty clear and your passion kind of comes through. Um, that your your passion for MIS led to significant involvement in, in not only Sages but but many other surgical societies. Uh, of course, Sages Story is the official podcast of Sages, so we, we love kind of hearing about our guests' uh, introduction to Sages and maybe some some talk about how you were propelled into many leadership roles. Uh, of course, culminating with your your presidency um, about 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, from 2000 to 2001. So, I'd love to hear about that story. Well, um, back in 1989, actually, one of the faculty members at WashU was a member of Sages because he liked to do colonoscopy, and I was doing some flexible endoscopy as well. He suggested I join the organization, and then started doing laparoscopy and it became apparent that Sages was really the only only uh, association that actually not only didn't poo-poo laparoscopy but actually was embracing of it because I would put an abstract into the American College of Surgeons or to SSAT and they wouldn't even look at it this laparoscopy yeah. crap and <laughs> uh and so um I actually went to my first meeting, I think, in 1990, um, and they got me involved immediately um, in teaching Sages courses. And I remember the teaching in the Learning Center at Sages out in um, California somewhere. I can't remember exactly where it was. 
and having me teach laparoscopic suturing, and I, I couldn't suture worth a damn, but um, I was teaching at the at the learning center. But they got got me involved, and um, there were so many opportunities as this blew up in our faces. I mean, yeah. laparoscopy just exploded. Um, and the interest level among surgeons was so high, and, and Sages was by far the organization that was really carrying the carrying the torch, but also trying to make things safer with its train the trainers initiative. Um, sure. And so I got very involved in those things, um, and you know over time I was given more responsibility. I was the the uh, meeting um, chair. Um, I don't remember what year, probably 1997 or eight, something like that. And there was just one me and uh, doing the whole meeting. And that was uh, quite, quite. Oh, wow. um, I also remember um, Lee Swanstrom and I sitting down with Sally Matthews in the late 90s at Wash U to uh, put together the basics of the FLS um, course and throwing it around. How, how could we do this? We thought there were there were. A lot of trainees who knew nothing about a CO2 pneumoperitoneum or the potential dangers of laparoscopic surgery or, you know, any of that. And um, so we thought that was an important thing. And then we uh, heard what Jerry Freed was doing and grabbed him for the um, for the technical side of things. But it was in those days you could it's, as long as it seemed to be reasonable and pushing the field forward. There were very few barriers, and the Sage the Sages group just wanted us to be involved and and kept pushing us. It, it was it was great. That's really cool. And um, you you're still very active, chairing committees and doing other other projects. What do we know about your current activities at Sages? I'm not doing as much at Sages anymore, and it's you know time to pass it off to other folks. <laughs> What I love about Sages, you know, I am a member of a bunch. There's no other society in the world, I'm sure, that does as much to give back to the membership as Sages does. And, sure. and to the people and to surgeons who are not members. I mean, the Sages University stuff is just incredible. And now all the video-based analysis and, you know, mm. right one thing after another after another. There's no stopping. And, you know, when I joined, I think there were three administrators, um, Barbara Bercy, um, mm -hmm. Sally, and and um, I think one other at the time trying to do all this stuff. So you can imagine now with the army they have, yep. it's incredible that they keep investing so much in education. And I, I think it's I think it's just wonderful. So, so certainly Sage is the organization that I feel closest to. Same. Yeah. And it, yeah. Certainly, I, I think even looking to woven into years of service to sages, as well as having a busy clinical practice, you had many invited lectures around the globe. And it's actually funny to see many of the titles of these talks given decades ago, and how relevant <laughs> they are today, like laparoscopic management of gastroesophageal reflux disease and management of gallstone pancreatitis in the laparoscopic era. You know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, these are hot topics even today. And it, it kind of reminds me of King Solomon's ecclesiastical lament that there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, what have you seen? I, I mean, even your lithotripsy 
I mean, we're on the lithotripsy now and, you know, getting, sharing it with urology and getting back into bile duct exploration. And, you know, we had uh, George Bercy on. And so, I, I mean, I think it was just seeing that we've, you know, woven throughout, what have, what have you seen change since leading the discourse and the narrative on this, you know, three decades ago, four decades ago now, well, it's crazy. It's getting to be a lot more scientific and not just experiential, which it kind of was. I mean, back then, you know, we could go into the lab and do 10 small bowel resections in pigs laparoscopically and publish it the next month sort of thing, you know? And, uh, and so uh, there wasn't as much rigor because everything was so new. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we were very fortunate um, to be able to work with industry um, and and get a lot of money for the lab. I mean, I never made a penny off any of the stuff I helped I helped design, but I mean, we helped make the, the initial clip applier and some of the initial trocars and staplers and things like that. But they funded my lab to a half to a half a million dollars a year, and so we were just in there playing. And I had fellows who would go in and say. Hey, let's well, see if there's any tumor spread in a laparoscopy model. And, you know, I mean, it was like, okay, sure, let's do it. It's, you know, again, it was fun, but it was a lot of work, a lot of weekends and nights and, you know, none of this 80 hour work week stuff. <laughs> but I feel like that, I don't know, it just, uh, going back to when I first met you and then since then kind of following your career, it seems that education has been kind of the center of everything you've done, whether it's the research and learning or improving laparoscopic surgery, your roles at, at Sages. So is that something that's all, that was always in you? Because there are a lot of educators, but every it's not it's not common that you've kind of find one like yourself that is, it, it feels like it just exudes out of you. So did you learn that? Was it always a knack for yourself? Were you a tutor when you were in high school? No, um, none of that. I, I yeah. think it just came from passion. And I'm not, I'm not really an educator. I'm more of a teacher, I think. Mm -hmm. And I love the apprenticeship model in surgery. You know, your hands on, you know, I wear a lot of different hats, but if I could, if I had to get rid of them all except one, it would be a bouffant cap sitting in the OR <laughs> or standing in the OR with a resident, lights down, and playing video games with music in the background. Yeah, and cool. What could be yeah, better? That's cool. But I feel like as a chair, you were the same. You know, there are chairmen that are very disconnected, hierarchical in the way that they rule, and others that are very much down to the level of their people, so to speak. Um, more like a servant leader as opposed to like someone that leads from far away. So do you have any comments about how you even led a department that way? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, everybody's different, right? And they're all the different uh, styles of leadership and stuff like that. And you have to know a little bit of a number of them, but ultimately it comes back to your native personality, how you interact most of the time. Um, and frankly, I like to get along with people. <laughs> and um, and my, my goal, as, as um, I had alluded to earlier, is as a leader, I see it as my job to find out what drives the people who work with or for me, what gives them passion, what they're passionate about, and then get them the resources to be able to do those things. That, that's what I think a chair's job is, and to, and yeah. to build programs, to recruit the right people in, um, to build programs that you think are going to push the field forward. 
And so that's that's what I try to do. You know, you did spend a, a little bit of extra time in various leadership courses. Uh, I saw that as well at Harvard, as well as the American College of Surgeons. In those courses, what were some of the, the tips on leadership within surgery? And how, and how have you been able to really kind of continue to lead and grow as a leader over over many years? You know, I think, I think the important things are to know who your audience is, um, number one. Number two, that to recognize, particularly in this day and age, that a chair of a department is a middle manager um, as, as well as a leader. So you need to manage up and manage down. And it's the managing up is where you get the resources to help the management down. Um, and, um, and I think you, you need to be present. Uh, you need to set an example. You need to try to be positive, even when there's a COVID epidemic and all the nurses have left um, and, uh, and, and those sorts of things. And the, the thing I think is probably the most important for a chair is to, is to develop or have emotional intelligence. So you, you can kind of regulate what you do, but also you can, um, you can see what effect you have on other people. That's great. And I would say that um, in addition, you've had so much amazing, besides education and, or teaching, uh, you had the big resource that you've mentioned with like amazing funding and so on. But, you know, Kevin's our hepatobiliary person on this show, and he always <laughs> loves to talk about um, this. But I did notice that you've done a lot of research on management of cirrhosis, minimally invasive management of bile duct stones. Um, what of what you've done has been, you think, the most impactful for our society? Oh, um, the things that I've talked about with the 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 medical students and stuff here is, <clears throat> first of all, kind of being one of the first academic surgeons to do laparoscopic surgery. Second, I think, was uh, developing FLS. Third was helping to develop, um, and we developed the common bile duct simulator for laparoscopic common bile duct exploration. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if, if there are other things out there, but those are the kind of the things that I think are important in terms of helping to push forward the, the, the art and science. Yeah, picking, piggybacking off that a little bit, um, you've been at the forefront of several multiple innovations in minimally invasive surgery, including minimally invasive surgery itself. Um, innovation continues to be a, a huge part of a surgeon's uh, career. What are some absolute keys that surgeons have to keep in mind as, as they innovate? Yeah, well, I think there are a number of things. First of all, as they innovate, but also as they choose which innovations to pick up. Um, right. And, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, is it safe? Will it be better than the existing alternatives? Will it be something that can be taught to others? Um, and is it not going to increase the increase the price of things, you know, tenfold? And um, if all of those things you can tick off all of those things, then I think it's worth trying to invest some of your time to to help push that forward. If any of those is negative, then probably not a 
not a great thing. I mean, I still can't believe that we were doing natural orifice surgery, taking out people's gallbladders through their vagina or through their <laughs> stomach. I mean, you know, we were able to do it and didn't hurt anybody, but that, that, in retrospect, wasn't really smart, and it did not fulfill many of those criteria. And you I just, never know; may come back. It'll be resurgence of notes. Well, if you know, if they can develop good, yeah, flexible these, instruments, they, these platforms are are developing. I, oh, I, I'm sure they are, and they'll they, probably be done robotically. And you know, I mean, I I am a dinosaur now in my own institution because everybody wants to do robotics, and uh, so. Uh, and that, you know, they've actually convinced me now that robotic hernia, hiatal surgery probably makes sense. Okay, I'd like to, okay, this is perfect because um, I don't want to call myself a dinosaur, but it really irks me sometimes when, like today I did a laparoscopic angle hernia repair tap and the resident had never seen a tap before. Everything is tap because everything's robotic. Yeah. Right. And right. this was Even totally extraperitoneal. Even gallbladders are Even done robotic. Yeah. So when I, when I, my first job, my chairman didn't really believe in laparoscopy as its own specialty. He considered that a technology. Right. Your specialization should be in an organ system. Right. And, and you should, laparoscopy can't be its own service, for example. So we never had an MIS service, so to speak. Um, and then now with robotics, I feel that the beauty and the, like, for example, this laparoscopic angle hernia, sometimes they do them with pediatric three millimeter trocars. You know, I don't need eight millimeter huge honking trocars for a robot to do an angle hernia. Right. But I feel like we lose a little bit of the finesse of surgery, understanding that there's definitely a lot of positives with robotic surgery for other techniques. For so things. what is your take on it? Because I don't, I hate being... I don't, I'm not anti-robot, but I'm not rah-rah, right. everything must be done robot either. Right. Well, I, frankly, at, at my stage of my career, I've decided not to take up robotics. So now I'm the guy, <laughs> even the chief residents want to operate, do straight stick laparoscopy and open inguinal hernia repairs. I mean, it, yeah. and, and laparoscopic, but some are open, you know, and I would do a big scrotal hernia in an hour and a half, whereas yeah. the roboticist took six hours to do that, you know, that sort of thing. So in my mind, robotics, I think it's a useful technology. I think it's really amazing what can be done. Um, and I think it's valuable for certain areas. Um, but it also adds like $1,500 to the cost of anything that's done. And yeah. as, as hospital systems are looking more and more closely at uh, contribution margins, it's going to be hard to sell that for gallbladders and, and routine hernias. I think the abdominal wall stuff makes sense. Um, I think the difficult hiatal uh, surgery makes sense. Yeah. I think the stuff deep in the pelvis makes sense. I think probably pancreatectomies and whipples and things make sense because of the ease of suturing. Um, so I think we're going to see it increasingly, but now our acute care surgeons are learning how to do it. And, um, and I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's almost overwhelming. And so, um, yeah. you know, we'll see what happens next. And Intuitive has done a great job in terms of making all the residents want to do robotics and yes, yeah. to do it, and then they demand it. Yeah, for sure. The marketing has been a big part of it, which we didn't, I don't think we saw as much of it with laparoscopy, not like we're seeing it with robotics, but there was this argument of lap, laparoscopic gallbladders, right? Weren't there people throwing tomatoes at 
at surgeons that were t- saying these should be done laparoscopically and there's a high rate of bile duct injuries and so on. So do you think we're in an, an equivalent scenario with robotics or is it totally different? Oh, I, I think it's different because the concept of minimally invasive surgery still carries over, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Oh, and I forgot that the other thing that I was happy about that I helped with was <laughs> developing the critical view of safety with mm. Steve Strasberg. With Strasberg, yes, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Was that, so, that that was during your time at, at Washington University? At Washington? Yeah. 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 It was 95 that we published that paper. That may have been your lecture. May, may, UCLA. Have been, may have been. Um, yeah, but if you look at the CV, you'll see that the same talk repeated a hundred times and <laughs> oh, here's the next one and that'll be repeated a hundred times and on and on and on. But the opportunities that this has given are just unprecedented for, you know, here I am a 37 year old just on faculty and I'm in Germany teaching the German professors how to do gallbladder operations. Wow. We went as a group to China in 1991. Wow. And took out gallbladders. I mean, it, and then took all the equipment back with us. I don't think they did another one for five years, but I mean, just <laughs> yeah, unprecedented so cool. uh, opportunities. Do you have a yeah. wall full of all these pictures of different areas? No, you no, I don't. Because then, you know, we didn't have a phone that took pictures back then. True. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> you had true. to actually think about it and take a camera. How cool! Develop the film. Jeez, it was ridiculous. How cool! And that segues a little bit into into the next question, which is is about collaboration. Uh, also, very evident from the greater than two hundred publications is the many multi institutional collaborations that occurred uh, here in the U.S. and, and abroad. How, what's the secret to working together? It's hard enough to get surgeons to work together in their own hospital. Uh, so, um, you know, how, how are you able to do that around the globe and, and publish too? I think it's one thing to kind of go give a talk. It's another to, to match strengths and put patient lists together and, and do this. I mean, but you did it over and over and over. Well, I think, I think a lot of that relates to relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unlikely that you're going to try and do a collaboration with somebody you've, you've never met before. Um, and I think it makes it way easier when you're simpatico with people and you have similar thoughts in terms of what you think is important in whatever this research is you're trying to put together um, and plan well before it all begins, uh, because once it gets started, it's hard to undo what you've done. Um, but again, I think it's mainly relationships. And um, I've been, again, really fortunate to be able to make friends around the world. And, um, and hopefully one day I'll be able to do a lot of traveling and, and hang out with them again. I'm sure you will. I mean, you're, you're going to keep getting invited uh, to, to talk. <laughs> Not nearly as often anymore. It's just as well. Let the, let the youngsters do all this. So have you been to every single Sages meeting or have you accidentally missed one? I have been to... Since every, since you since you since you became I've a member, of course. Every <laughs> Sages meeting yeah. since I became a member in 1990. Really, that's wow. Really good. That and is. And I was president in 2001, six months or five months before 9/11. Oh, oh wow. wow! Yes, yes, and yes. The meetings then changed significantly from that. Wow. On. Did did that 
alter the the meeting that year significantly? It was five months before April to September. Oh yeah. But the okay. year after it it altered it, and yeah. the year after the meeting was in New York City. Yeah, I remember oh, that. Yeah. The World Congress, and that's when they had the lights going up. From yeah, towers into the sky, and uh, that was a very emotional meeting. It was very emotional. Yeah. Well, then you would very much like our famous part of this Sages Story podcast. We call it the "We Are the Sages" segment. We are the sages. Sing it, everybody! Have you had a good time tonight? So <laughs> as part of this segment, we want you to recall uh, one of your most memorable moments at a Sages meeting. Well, there, there are a bunch, and I'm sure there are some that I don't remember very well, too, but uh, <laughs> that, by design. That, is, that aside, yeah. in 1990, I want to say one, maybe 1992, the meeting was held in Washington, D.C., um, and we were in this ballroom for the dinner, and um, the um, Capital Steps, uh, a group, a singing group of guys, professionals, mm -hmm. um, gave a performance at the end of it. But then a bunch of us um, young leaders within Sages got up and did the, we were the lap rappers, and we actually yes. did a rap uh, song. Um, all with crazy clothes on and stuff, including George Bursey wearing one that said, we'll work for sex. Um, oh, I want a picture of that one. And uh, oh, Hunter and George and, and Ponsky and oh, Jeff, uh, I mean, you, you can, you can imagine who that cast of the usual cast of thousands were. And uh, it was, it was, it, that's how the Friday night sing-off started was um, as a result of that. Performance. The lap rappers. Lap rappers. Yes. Wow, that's the origin. That's yeah. great. The origin story. There you go. Well, we've picked your brain significantly in the last forty-five minutes or so, and and as we wind down, we have a few more questions. So the first one is, uh, and I know that you you don't know necessarily who's been on before, but who should we invite next on the show? Well, I just mentioned a bunch of names. Yeah, people, yeah. Sure a couple of them. Uh, yeah, a few of those are already. Yeah, we've 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 hit a number of those already. Yeah, and you know, and and there are ones who, as you said, like hundred-year-old George Bursey, you want to grab hold of quickly. Oh, we got him. We got him. Oh, I know. We didn't get I his T-shirt though. We didn't get his T-shirt. We got. Yeah, that's true. I actually was a visiting professor at Cedars a couple of weeks ago, and I, I uh, yes, last week, and saw George for uh, several hours the day after, and we we chatted about things, and he, he's amazing. He is amazing. He's there. He is there before anyone else. Yeah, six o'clock in the morning. Rounds, and yeah, no, amazing guy. I mean, yeah. what a what a hero to many people. Um, so, I mean, I, I think you just go through the list of Sages presidents and try and get every single one of them. This is true. You know, we didn't um, talk much about your family. Do they know what an amazing person you are or do they just think you're dead? <laughs> oh, they, they think I was gone too much. And the problem oh, was, okay. was the Sages meeting was almost always during spring break. Mm -hmm. True. And it's, I would it's always the same this year. 
and I would always choose sages and uh, yeah, never live that down. I tried to invite them this year. Uh, the, the, the prospect of Montreal in March, having <laughs> been there actually with them in June of last year, like, yeah, we're good, dad. We're, we're, we're going <laughs> to, yeah, that's right. See stay. you later, dad. We'll stay that's in Cleveland. Point, we'll stay in <laughs> Cleveland. <laughs> but that's a good point. No one's mentioned the fact that it's always during spring break. It, it's often during often spring. during often. spring break. Yeah. 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 yeah, it seemed like always when our kid when our kids were young. Yeah. Uh, so no, I I <laughs> I told them I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and so they think I just locked out. Very good. Where are they all now? Um, yeah, but uh, two sons, both in California, one in San Rafael, just north of San Francisco, and one in L.A. Oh. Perfect. Great place to be. Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Great place. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> going to be in go. LA four times this year. So it's a uh, great Mostly place. to visit me. He misses me. Yeah, this, exactly. This Zoom is not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's to get free uh, shirts. Free t- I'm, free I'm t-shirts. running out of, uh, yeah. But I, and I'm sure you guys make huge honoraria doing this from Sage. Oh, huge. Yeah. Yes. It's- Fifteen hundred dollars uh, for uh, <laughs> just to observe. Send, send the send the invoice. <laughs> yeah, we well, get what, what was his answer? Uh, we get paid in goodwill. That's how we get goodwill. Paid. Yeah. We get goodwill. paid in goodwill. Yeah, more there than enough. Go. Perfect. <laughs> well, listen. On behalf of the entire Sages uh, organization, as well as our listeners, uh, we would like to thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, we appreciate you taking this time. I think 45 minutes or, or a little bit more just to to share with us. As I said, I, I'm so grateful just to yes. get to know uh, our leaders and you're certainly, we would have had you on a lot, a lot sooner if, if, we, <laughs> if we could have, we feel sorry for. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's been great. And uh, thanks for, thanks for including me. It was lovely. Thank you so much for your time. All right, guys. Take care. And that wraps up today's episode of Sage's Stories. You can view the show notes for any links to sites we referenced today. Visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. See you again next time, and remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.